Julian Clark is Professor Emerita of Ancient History at the University of Bristol. She read Greek and Latin at Somerville College, Oxford, and her career is centred on the field known to classicists as Late Antiquity and to theologians as Early Christian Studies or Patristics. She has written and edited several major texts on the social and intellectual history of this period. Her most recent book, Monica, an Ordinary Saint, explored early Christian womanhood through the life of St. Augustine's mother, St. Monica. In this episode, she discusses her ongoing project, A Commentary on Augustine's City of God. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I wanted to start by asking you how you came to be a historian of late antiquity or early Christianity. Um, What drew you to this field originally? (laughs) It's a good question. And a lot of it was chance. I read grades at Somerville, indeed, in the days when Oxford had five colleges for women and 22 for men. And I was taught by a remarkable historian at Somerville, Miriam Griffin, who always said that we should take account of law and philosophy, not just of politics, which Oxford history tended to do then. So that strand came in together with the philosophy in greats. For several years after my DPhil, I was picking up whatever teaching I could wherever we were in the country. And some of that, because of my classical training, was in New Testament and church history. And then when we moved to Liverpool, I became involved with the series Translated Texts for Historians, 300 to 800. It was a period I didn't know much about at the time, because greats never got any further than Trajan in those days, but it was fascinating. And for that reason, I stayed with late antiquity, and particularly in patristic texts, late ancient texts. So that's how I came to be working in that period, at a time which was actually very exciting for it. What was exciting about the field at that time? About that time, it was a period of great interest in late antiquity, partly because we were just beginning to have the internet so that people who worked on all kinds of areas could actually be in touch. And partly, I think, because it raised so many questions which related to social change at the time, questions about gender, questions about changes of culture, what happens to societies when there's a lot of movement, what actually changes and why. And texts which for a long time had been left to theologians therefore became of interest to historians because they very often did provide us with interest in material on social change, which had to be very carefully interpreted, but it was there. Mm -hmm. And sometimes 
it were these were sources which weren't so much restricted to the elite not because they were being written by people outside the elite but because christian preachers were actually trying to speak to people who weren't necessarily highly educated and the way that they spoke and the things that caught their attention one wouldn't otherwise find the most striking example is poor people who feature very little in classical texts but in christian texts of course are very prominent so that kind of social interest combined with being able to talk to people who worked not just on greek and latin but on coptic and armenian who used material culture it was extraordinarily interesting it still is now you're currently working on a commentary on augustine's city of god could you tell us a bit about that project yes now that began like a lot of other projects at the turn of the millennium where it seemed possible to have a large scale international collaboration because we got the technology we could actually share documents on a website all the things that are probably now taken for granted now but they were new and exciting and they got over the problem that one person working on a text comes from a particular context and i'm a classicist by training so i will see reading a passage of city of god that augustine is working with let's say cicero de republica i might not see as a medievalist would that this passage became very important in debates of the 9th or 10th century so part of the idea was that a collaboration across the disciplines would be able would be much more used to people trying to read and work with the text it was also a time of great debate about commentary as a form is it a matter of one scholar taking over and saying this is my text i'll tell you how to read it i'll tell you what you need to know about this which might not be what somebody else thinks they need to know and it's quite striking if you look at the history of commentary on city of god in the medieval and early modern periods the focus was on the first 10 books because that's where readers needed help with classical references but it could be assumed that when augustine gets on to theology everybody knows the biblical references everybody knows the theological debates so they didn't need nearly as much help that of course has changed so again that was part of the idea that you could have different perspectives on the text coming together the practical problem of course 
if you've got all these people in different countries, universities wanting them to do different things, different priorities, it's extremely difficult to keep a collaboration going. The collaborative projects which do work best have a group of people who are all in the same place. Yeah. When I started on this, Mark Vesey asked, did I realize why all the great patristics projects have happened in monasteries? Because everybody was there working to the same schedule with the same priorities. And that's just now not the case. So it's turned into a much more traditional single author commentary. But it has been fascinating. Could you talk a bit more about what the writing process has been like? So you've finished books one through five of the commentary, is that correct? Yeah, books one to five are about ready to go. I'm holding on to them because the books I'm working on now, which is the six to ten block, suddenly make me realise I should maybe have written a little differently about earlier material. It's not a matter of starting at the beginning and working through, though I'm doing that. The great thing about working on City of God is that whatever anybody wants a paper about, there'll be something in City of God that gives me a starting point. So, and you mentioned that I've written a number of book chapters. Those come out of invitations to conferences in really interesting places. So I would give a paper that related to the theme of the conference, and then typically, of course, nowadays, people want to produce a conference volume. So I'd write that up. And that contributes to the commentary. And my starting point would always have been some of the text. So there are much later aspects of the text, um, later stages of the text, where I will have written something worked on something and can see more connections. And what is it like working with the text in this way? Could you talk a bit more about sort of the experience of, of writing on Augustine? Yes, that's interesting. And it's often said that commentary is a typically classicist way of working. Classics and biblical studies where, again, texts, a set of texts, would be central. And it's probably true that in other disciplines, it's not the way people work. They may do editions, say, in English. But I found talking to historians, say, of medieval and early modern, they don't work by commentaries, even when texts are actually central to their work. What I find particularly valuable about commentary is that you have to keep engaging with what that author said, rather than 
taking that author as a starting point and developing your own, no doubt, very interesting theory about what that author is doing or about a wider topic. So it's also, in the case of City of God, there's such an extraordinary amount of material. It's very educative learning about it all or trying to. To talk a bit more about sort of the contents of City of God, Augustine clearly contrasts the, the differing desires that, that characterise the earthly city and the city of God. But then you've written that the two are not in simple opposition. What do you mean by that? Let me try saying what I think might be interesting you, which is the way that the citizens of the city of God are actually living in the earthly city and living by the laws and customs of the earthly city, unless there's a law that tells them they must worship false gods, which of course they can't obey. And you can't actually tell who they are. And it is, as you say, the desires which make the difference. Because the citizens of the city of God love God and want to do God's will. The citizens of the earthly city love themselves and want to get their own way. They want everyone else to do what they want. So what makes the difference is not the work that you're doing, the job that you're doing. It's what it is that you fundamentally want in doing that job so that you can, for instance, have an official of the Roman Empire, which at first sight looks just like the earthly city, wanting everybody else to do what it says. But you can have an official of the earthly city, like some of those Augustine knew, who does love God, and who is motivated by the desire to do God's will and by love of neighbour, to protect the people whose job it is for him to protect, and the people whose job, that's getting tangled, isn't it? The people he is bound to protect in accordance with his official role. So he is living within the earthly city, but he is a citizen of the city of God. So Augustine wrote City of God during a rather uncertain period in, in Roman and Christian history. Um, he you, you write that he wrote it in response to a Roman official's questioning of, of Christianity. So how did this uncertainty affect Augustine's thinking and, and writing in that context? Yes. From Augustine's point of view, I think, it was a question of, right, how do I answer this now? It's not that he was himself affected by uncertainty. In fact, City of God is an extraordinarily confident text, sometimes quite annoying because it must have worked for the rhetoric of the time. He responds to 
a hostile or disbelieving reaction. By shouting louder, you get more and more superlatives and more and more, how could anybody possibly fail to accept this? So though he was very much aware that there were people who did not accept Christian arguments and also aware that people who would call themselves Christian, even in fact people who were committed Christians, baptized Christians, there were people making compromises that Augustine wouldn't himself find acceptable. He's not prepared to show any uncertainty himself or any serious attempt to understand the beliefs of the non-Christians he was dealing with. It's always in terms of, you can't possibly believe this stuff. The gods of Rome are unhelpful, false, demonic, the stories you tell about them are ridiculous. The one, one way in which he doesn't always follow that tactic is when he tries to say instead, look, what you want citizens to do, good citizens to do, is what Christians teach anyway. This comes out much more strongly in his first response to the Roman official you mentioned, when that official is arguing, you simply can't run an empire by turning the other cheek. No. Christian ethics do not work. And what Augustine does there, not in City of God, but in a letter, is to argue that by turning the other cheek, what is meant is do not be motivated by desire for revenge, which, as he says, is a very widely accepted moral principle. So sometimes he will claim we're actually arguing for the same moral ideal, but most of the time, he is simply asserting a very confident Christian case. You write that Augustine wasn't exactly interested in political theory. He didn't think politics really mattered in the big picture. But he was also a bishop, and as a bishop, he had a responsibility to interact with and intercede with government officials. So how did this responsibility play into his writing? Ah, yes, again. Good question. He is not writing political theory in the sense that he doesn't spend time thinking about what would be the best way to organize society. He reckons you work with society as it is at the time. And there's a very nice collection of Augustine's political writings, is the title, 
in the series The Cambridge History of Cambridge Texts in the History of Political Thought, Margaret Atkins and Bob Dodaro. And they make the point that his political writings, quote unquote, are precisely that sort of negotiation with officials, thinking about what you do when someone has actually broken the law, how you persuade the official to apply the law, but not with the kind of punishment that would actually maim or kill. So part of his job, as you say, is to, as a bishop, is to intercede for mercy. And there's a very interesting exchange with a Christian official, Macedonius, who says, yes, but I am responsible for the crime rate. I cannot simply let off offenders. And so Augustine has to think about that and decide that there isn't actually clear guidance in scripture on the purpose of punishment. But he thinks it should be in the hope of reform or at least, always I think in the hope of reform, in the hope of course of deterring other criminals. But the reform of the criminal is most important. So though it's probably necessary to impose a penalty, you want the criminal to have the chance of repentance and leading a better life. The, the way in which this links with political theory is it's not if we ran this country differently if we had a different structure, we would work differently. It's always still what the individual, the official or the criminal or whatever, is going to do and why. It's that person's relationship with God that matters. Even if Augustine wasn't interested in politics, he made subtle anti-imperial arguments, which might have to do with him being from North Africa, how did how do these views on empire and ex his experiences with empire influence him? Now, this question, actually, this is the one that I had thought of talking about if we'd been able to do the usual kind of history society meetings. So uh, I think the key thing about Augustine and empire is that the Latin word imperium has two related meanings. It starts by being the acknowledged power to give orders, imperare, and it becomes the territory in which that right is recognized, empire. Augustine is not impressed by empire in the second sense. The sheer scale and duration of the Roman Empire, which he knew was very remarkable. But he did think that there has to be imperium in the first sense, 
acknowledge right to give orders, agreement on who gives the orders and who takes the orders, because he thinks that without that agreement, there will be permanent conflict, because it is a fact about human nature, he thinks, that everybody wants their own way, and they can't have it. So at all levels of human society, from the household through the city up to the Roman Empire, you have got to have agreement on who is giving the orders and who is taking them. He'd much rather see that agreement happening in a small-scale, self-sufficient territory, not in a huge great territory which is incredibly cumbersome to run and where the people who are running it are in a constant state of anxiety. And though he welcomes the peace that is imposed by the Roman Empire and the language that is imposed by it so that you can communicate and there are lots of interpreters for the local languages, he still never lets you forget what is the cost in blood of that achievement. So that's what he thinks about empire in general. The question of how much he's affected by being from North Africa is really interesting. And I think, I am slightly puzzled by this, but I think it is the case that he identifies with the Romans, not by the alternative strand of history in North Africa. And I'm puzzled because he has all the resources for tracing a sequence of people oppressed by a colonizing power. And he could find in Sallust, whose history he uses a lot, the story that the Punic people told about their own history, the people who settled there, which Sallust said he had actually translated for him from Punic books. Augustine makes very great use of Virgil, who of course tells the heartbreaking story of Dido, Queen of Carthage, who is abandoned by Aeneas on his way to found Rome. Augustine tells you a lot about the horrors of the Punic Wars in which Rome conquered Africa. You could very much make a post-colonialist, anti-imperialist history, but he doesn't. On the occasions when he calls himself African, affair, he doesn't do it very much, doesn't in City of God. And when he does, it's to say that he comes from that region. It's not to make himself African as opposed to Roman. And his language is Latin, his culture is Latin. He couldn't speak the local language, though he did try to ensure that there were interpreters and if he could manage it, priests who could speak 
Munich. And he does very much emphasize in City of God, it doesn't actually matter who won, who lost, which is the ruling power, when he says explicitly, everybody is obeying the same laws and paying the same taxes. And it's not the case that one set of people can have access to education which is barred from the others. So he doesn't seem to share that feeling of being part of an oppressed people. He is part of the Roman Empire. Why do you think he identified with the empire, even, even when he so disapproved of the idea of physical imperium? There's a fine Roman tradition of critique of imperialism, which goes back to, it's certainly there in Cicero, it's there very strongly in Tacitus, whom Augustine doesn't seem to have read, but within Roman tradition, and certainly within philosophical tradition, there was critique of empire. But that, I think, could coexist with a sense of the extraordinary achievement of ruling that much territory, and in particular, a sense of the glories of the Latin language and of Latin culture, even when he doesn't approve of its content. And I think if you try and make comparisons with other post-colonialist perspectives, the difference is that there we have the voices of people who are much more aware of having been conquered, having been, as they feel, oppressed and exploited by a ruling power. Sometimes even so, that will coexist with admiration for the culture in which many such writers have been educated. So it, it's not an impossible way of thinking and feeling. It does seem to be the case that there wasn't in Africa of Augustine's time a tradition of resistance to Rome. There might be, there were rebellions, but those are rebellions against a particular emperor, a particular immediately ruling power. One reason why Augustine is probably not very interested in political theory is if you did have a revolution, what would it do except to put in power a different emperor with a different set of advisors? I don't think he saw any practical possibility of a republic or any other system of government. And it's quite striking that 
in late antiquity. There's very little discussion of political philosophy in that sense, of substituting a different kind of government. Political philosophy is much more concerned with either imagining an ideal community for the select few, or in fact with developing the political virtues, the other regarding virtues within an individual. So he's not alone in just not thinking about what could be put in place of the current society. He doesn't actually think that matters very much. Mm -hmm. Sometimes this becomes really difficult for modern readers because the level of his acceptance of any regime, Christians, he says, are told to bear with any government. And you think, well, at what point do Christians have then decide love of neighbour makes it impossible for me to bear with this government? We have to get rid of it. And presumably, he thought that would actually lead to a worse state, bloodshed and conflict. And also, of course, he is so much focused on the afterlife that he can say, well, if it's a bad ruler, that's deserved punishment for sin, or it's spiritual training, which very few people now would find acceptable as an argument. Um, you've you've kind of already touched on this, but um, I think it would be interesting to discuss it a bit more in depth. So um, Augustine has some interesting hypotheses about authority. Um, for example, he writes that humans have essentially an innate desire for authority, which which applied very well to the Roman concept of imperium, um, but I think could apply equally well today. What what do you think about that? Ah, uh, I guess it depends what is meant by authority. I see what you mean, that he thinks people want authoritative guidance on what they should do, what they should think, what should they read. He makes the point that in some of his early writings, that you wouldn't actually know what was worth studying, where to invest your effort except by the authority of the people who told you. Then there is, as you say, the need for imperium, which is not so much an innate desire as simply facing facts, that if there isn't agreement on who gives the orders, we're going to have conflict. Quite what he would think, this may be what you have in mind, of the present day very alarming trend to trust in leaders who project confidence and charisma and there are simple solutions to all these problems. I don't 
think he would be at all happy about that because these are people who, by Augustine's analysis, are operating on desire for praise. It's very clear in many cases confronting us at the moment. That's what they want. I don't wish to do them injustice. They may also want what they think is best for their people. But typically, they go about it by rejection of other people, refusal to recognize that there are many perspectives and many people in very difficult situations. I can't see how he could possibly approve of that. His view of people in power is that we shouldn't call them blessed because they're successful and they win victories and perhaps they have long years in power and hand over to the person they want to see succeed them. We should call them blessed because they are good people. And he has an interesting piece on the Christian emperor Theodosius I, who indeed was successful. But, says Augustine, God doesn't always hand success to the Christian emperors and not to the non-Christian, or we might start thinking that was the point of worshipping God for success. Whereas what matters, as always, is how that leader responds to the love of God. Does that go any way to answering yes, the question yes. about authority? Yeah. Augustine also doesn't consider Rome to have been a true res publica because it didn't worship the true God. He tells us that only the city of God is a true res publica, but what about a res publica on earth, uh, or one that isn't Roman? Is that possible, or what might that look like to him? Ah, right. Now, that is a question which was of very great interest to particular medieval philosophers who thought that, yes, there might be a res publica on earth because of two things that Augustine says. One of them is that, well, instead of saying city of God, kiwitas dei, we could say res publica of God. But he thinks he won't do that because res publica is not biblical language and it has all sorts of overtones that he doesn't want to use. We could talk about the res publica Christi, but he thinks better not. And then much later on, when he's finished saying that no, Rome never was a res publica, because on Cicero's definition, a res publica is a group united by agreement on justice and by community of interest. Whereas Rome's own historians show that there was never justice, there was always injustice. Much later in Book 19, Augustine says that justice 
is giving everyone their due. And God was never given his due because God did not receive worship. And people who should have been servants of God were taken from him and enslaved to false gods. So, some medieval theorists thought, if we had a situation in which God did receive his due worship, and all rulers knew that their power came only from God, and they were guided in that exercise of power by the church, then would we not have a res publica of God, a res publica ruled by Christ on earth? To which the answer is unfortunately no, because we do not know who is a citizen of the city of God. And that's something Augustine makes clear very early on, that it is perfectly possible, we were talking about this earlier, to have an imperial civil servant who is a citizen of the city of God. And unfortunately, it's equally possible to have someone who shares Christian sacraments, but will turn out not to be a citizen of the city of God, because what motivates that person is love of self. It's, I think it is something that Augustine may have felt very acutely. There's a lovely passage in Confessions where he is worrying about temptations that still beset him, even though some of them don't do as much. And he has the lovely example if he's been preaching and they're all shouting, bravo, bravo, is he pleased? Because perhaps he has made them more aware than they were of the love of God. Or is he actually pleased because, yeah, that was rather a good sermon, wasn't it? And you can see the same anxiety. Am I actually wanting to do what God wants? Or am I concerned with how I seem to other people, how they're going to remember this? So that's why there couldn't be a res publica of God on earth, because there is no way you could know that the ruler or the bishop who's advising him or indeed any of the subjects of that ruler, are or are not citizens of the city of God. And is it only God who can know that, or will we ever be able to know who is a citizen and, and who is not? No, we are not going to know who belongs where until the last judgment which okay. separates the two cities. Until then, they're all tangled up. So... What we have to do, according to Augustine, is continue where we are in the earthly city, trying to live according to love of God and love of neighbor as best we can. We may not know, we can't be sure, but that's what we do in the meantime. And then we wait.
ultimately what what Augustine cared most about though was was the individual and the individual's belief in God. So why is this? Why is this? Because what could be more important? He is very much aware that people don't take seriously enough the existence of God, the need for response to the love of God, awareness of their own distance from that love. So that's what most matters. I don't think it's a question of that's what most matters and never mind about everybody else. It couldn't be. Because love of God and love of neighbor are the two great commandments. And if you believe in a God whose love for all humanity is overwhelming, then how could you yourself not respond to the need of other people, show love to other people? And he would no doubt wheel off all the sayings of the New Testament, the sayings of Jesus. If you don't love the people you do see, how can you love God whom you don't? So that, I think, is how it works. And that's why it's so overwhelmingly important. Sometimes the way that he puts this can be quite disquieting because he seems to be putting less emphasis than Christians now would on the needs of other people, the needs of those closest to you. But he is very clear, for instance, that if you want to lead what he regards as the best way of life, in which you live in a celibate, single-sex community, you don't have property of your own, you can devote your life to prayer, study, taking the gospel to other people. You can't do that if you have family responsibilities. You can't just walk out on them. Perhaps by agreement you could make provision for those responsibilities, but they are there and you must abide by them. And he also, I think, thinks that one of the best things you could do for anybody else is to take the gospel to them. So sometimes, yes, it does seem that there's perhaps too much emphasis on the individual response to God and not enough on concern for others. But it is there. I have one more question, um, which is this. What is it like to read and write on Augustine in an increasingly secular society? And what is the importance of, of his writing? Or how is the importance of his writing changing in such a society? Ah, that is interesting. I find it is quite helpful that I am reading and writing on Augustine in an increasingly secular society. 
because it brings home how much needs explaining, how much you can't take for granted. And there's a lot of really excellent scholarship on Augustine from earlier periods, where some things just seemed obvious to people that now don't. And for instance, that of course Augustine is right about how unsatisfactory Roman religion was. So from that point of view, it's actually very helpful to be reading, writing, talking to people for whom none of this is obvious. And many of my own students, for instance, were completely bewildered by what Augustine said. And I remember I was teaching City of God at the time of 9-11. And Augustine's response to suffering, disaster, like the Gothic invasion of Rome, just seemed incredible to those students. You couldn't possibly have said it now. So, yes, that's illuminating. What is his importance in such a society? Much less than it once was, because he is not regarded as this great authoritative figure. He's a man of late antiquity from a particular culture. And that was, again, one of the great shifts in awareness of Augustine. A number of people point this out, whereas he used to be this towering figure. It's always the towering figure in Western Christianity. Not by any means so much. When he is important, it's because he provides sometimes some very intelligent and thoughtful analysis of how people are thinking and feeling. He can be a very useful dialogue partner if you don't find his arguments persuasive. And he's often a good starting point for thinking. And obviously for people who are believers, he will also often supply insights, illumination. But you don't, I think, have to be a believer to find him useful and interesting, though you might get very impatient with him sometimes. There are still an extraordinary number of people working on him. And one of the more interesting things I've done is to be chair of directors for the Oxford Patristic Conference, which meets every four years and is international and has got bigger and bigger and bigger, which is great. There are always incredible numbers of panels proposed on Augustine. And that doesn't show any sign of diminishing, which is very interesting. Thank you so much uh, for joining us for this episode. Well, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of On History, a podcast from the Oxford University History Society. 
Remember to come back next week to hear from Adrian Gotobi, noted author and historian of ancient Rome.